Hebrews 3. Let's pray and let's get into our study. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for its richness, for its depth, for uh, this wonderful journey that we've been on through the book of Hebrews. Lord, may it continue to equip us and to enable us, uh, Lord, to walk with you ever better. Lord, may we as we read these words written to those who are tempted to be unfaithful, tempted to stray, tempted to compromise, may we be found to be faithful. Amen. And our, as we come now into chapter 3, that word faithful is going to be crucial as we engage in these six verses. We come to chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers... And with the word therefore, you've always got to ask, what's it there for? You look back and you see your context, you see your flow. And so as we've been going through Hebrews, we've seen that Jesus is greater than the angels. Might be a bit of a no-brainer to us, but in the context of Judaism, that was incredibly important. It was an issue where the angels were looked up to and venerated, and it was important for them to, to see as they were tempted to return to to Judaism. This is the context of the book. These people are suffering under persecution. The temptation for them is to, to leave their Christian brothers and sisters, particularly as Christianity becomes ever more, um, an ever higher percentage of Gentiles getting saved in these early years, and return to their Jewish brothers and sisters. There are these Jewish Christians, the remnant, if you like, to use an Old Testament term, who were very much part of the family of the Christian faith, but at the same time they were raised as Jews, they were Jews genetically, and they were very much part of the, the, the family of the Jewish brethren as well. And if they were in getting persecution, potentially from the Romans, and this persecution from within their own families, within their own homes, within their own... Um, background of faith and they could relieve their persecution by returning to the synagogue and ceasing to meet as Christians. The problem of course is that they're returning to a system that venerates angels and the writer of Hebrews is keen to point out how superior the Christian faith is and how superior Christ is to that system. When we come to chapter 3, we're about to engage in a whole argument that Jesus is greater than Moses. You think, well, if Jesus is greater than the angels, surely he's greater than Moses too. I mean, that's a step back, right? Oh, no, no, no. Not in the Jewish frame of reckoning. Moses, as one author says, held an almost godlike esteem. He was held in an almost godlike esteem by the Jewish people that Moses was so highly esteemed that there was danger of him being put on a par with Jesus. You think, that's ridiculous. How could that be? It was only a few decades earlier that the Pharisees looked their Messiah in the eyes and said, well, we're disciples of Moses. We're not with you, Jesus. We're Moses' followers. This is the, the circumstances of Judaism. If these Christian Jews leave the faith and they go back, 
They're surrounded by people who say, yeah, we don't want to be those Christ followers. We're Moses followers. Moses had that place of esteem within Judaism. We're going to talk about that. So the writer of Hebrews has taken us on this journey. And in the last section, we had that wonderful passage where he talks about Jesus who... You know, in the whole of chapter 2, in the context Psalm 8, man is in high esteem. Mankind is above the angels. We kind of become below the angels because of the falling into sin. But the mission of man is still in place because this one man, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who became a man so that he could die so that he could become our high priest, so that he could suffer like us, be tempted like us, go through trials and sufferings like us, that he could relate to us, and that he could die like us, so that in his death, he would be the propitiation of our sins. That God's wrath upon us for our sins would be appeased because the sacrifice of Christ would be sufficient to remove the wrath of God, to appease the wrath of God. What a saviour we have. What a high priest. And there is that term that is used there at the end of chapter 2, in verse 17. He might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And it's that faithfulness of Christ in his incarnation, in his suffering, in his death, in his accomplishments through his death that will now be used in chapter 3 to bring parallels with Moses. So that's where we're going. We're looking, therefore, because of what we've seen about Christ, we're now going to look ahead and see how much greater than Christ is than Moses. That's our journey in chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers. Now, the word here, brothers, means brothers and sisters. The, like so many languages, the male form encompasses when it is used when it's men and women. I prefer, I don't like inclusive translations when it's something that's specifically male that many people are trying to do. But when it's clearly talking about everybody, I actually favor inclusive translations. You ladies need to know that this refers to you as well. So, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, this Jesus we referred to, the propitiation, the high priest from the previous passage. Consider this Jesus. Consider him, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Right, let's unpack this. So we are holy, brothers and sisters. You know, back in chapter 2, verse 11, he says that, uh, he talks of sanctification. He says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Christ is holy and we are become holy through Christ. How did that happen? Verse 17, that's that propitiation again. God's wrath is against us because of our sin, but the sacrifice of Christ removes the wrath of God so that we are holy before God, not on the basis of anything that we've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. So therefore, from the previous section, we are holy brothers and sisters. Get, that, get your heads around that. You're holy. In God's eyes, you stand sinless. You stand before God in a sinless state, judicially. 
You have been declared to be right before God because of what Christ has accomplished. That is a powerful statement. And it's the basis of what he says next. Holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling. Now that sharing is something that is related to the whole of chapter 2. Remember chapter 2, that we are Christ's brothers and sisters. And he's using the word brothers again here. We are brothers and sisters of Christ because he's a son and we've been made sons and daughters of Christ. We have through what Christ has accomplished, become these holy brothers. And so, in the same way that Christ, in his humanity, had a heavenly calling that he fulfilled, the incarnation, his suffering, his trials, his faithfulness in that, his faithfulness unto death, so you too have a heavenly calling. Your holiness is not a gift in isolation. It's a gift for a purpose. We saw this in our Ephesian studies, those of you who are here for that. That God chose us before the foundation of the world, that he redeemed us through the blood of his Son, that he gave us his Holy Spirit through the teaching of his word, so that ultimately, though we are saved by faith and not works, chapter 2, verse 8, in chapter 2, verse 10, we're saved for works, that he prepared beforehand, going back to our calling before the foundation of the earth, that we might walk in them. In other words, the whole process of salvation, though it's not by works, that God has given it to us as a gift, he did it because there are works for us to do. There is a purpose to our calling. He goes on when he gets to chapter 4 of Ephesians and he talks about the church corporately. He talks about that calling that we have. He talks about how the Spirit was given to the church and there's these various giftings that we all have. We all have various gifts. We're all ministers. Because the same Holy Spirit has been given to each one of us to empower us for different works. When Jesus comes and he comes to the earth. His ministry begins, if you recall, with his baptism by John. And there is a voice from heaven and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. Not in the form of a dove, but like a dove. Not like a stone, you bonk, but gently like a dove. And the Spirit was visibly seen, probably manifestations of God's presence like in the Old Covenant, which they were still under at that time. And the Spirit of God comes upon Christ to empower him because he had a ministry to do. He had a job to do. And you, the moment you believed, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, God placed his Spirit within you because you too, from that moment, have been gifted and empowered for a ministry that is unique to you. You put all that together, that's a powerful little statement, even just in passing at the start of an argument about Moses. That we have been redeemed and we are holy before God and we're empowered for a mission that he chose us to partake in before the foundation of the world. Dang, we're important. Because God is going to use us to do astonishing things. Each and every one of us. Don't care how old you are, don't care how long you've been a Christian. Don't care how limited you are by language or capabilities. Don't care what your weaknesses are. Don't care how much you've fallen in the past. Don't care how many times you've messed up. 
You are holy and have a job to do. That's a powerful thing. And the enemy will continually try to hinder your ministry. The enemy will continually try and prevent your ministry. And the enemy will continually tell you that you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you're not capable. And who the heck do you think you are to think that you're of any value or worth or could accomplish anything? And you just say back, I'm not worthy and I cannot accomplish anything. But God by his spirit will accomplish miracles through me. Because he's redeemed me by the blood of his son and nothing will hinder his purposes. Oh, what a great passage. So we share in a heavenly calling. So what do we do then? How do we go about this? Do we, you know, is, is there somewhere in the Bible where there's a, a useful four steps to know your gifts? Oh, people love those sermons. I loathe them personally. Now this is what we do. We consider Jesus. Guys, do not overcomplicate this. There is not some secret hidden message in some secret hidden verse that will somehow give you a step-by-step -step program so that God can accomplish His purpose in your life. It is this simple. Set your eyes on Jesus Christ. Make Him the center of your life, the focus, the everything. You say, but, but, then, but then what? Just set your eyes on Jesus. But then what? Set your eyes on Jesus. But I've got to do something, surely. Yeah, you do. Set your eyes on Jesus. Just consider him. Focus on him. But, but, but why? What about the other stuff? What about this mission that I have and the giftings that I have? Listen, when your focus is completely on Jesus Christ, when the distractions of this world pass you by, when the threats that seek to steal your focus get placed in the trusting hands of God, when you say, Christ, I trusted you, I placed my life in your hands, I want to serve you, you're all that I want, I want to know more about you. When you just look at him, when you read passages like the ones that we've been doing in Hebrews, when you consider the salvation that he's given, when you consider who he is, when you consider he's greater than the angels and greater than Moses, when you just consider and focus on Jesus Christ, do you know what happens? You're changed. You're sanctified. That holiness that is yours in Christ becomes a practical holiness in your day-to-day -day life. That holiness is something that's outworked in your life more. And as you yield to God and as you walk in the Spirit in an ever more practical, holy life, you know what happens? Your mission just happens. It just gets done. You haven't got to plan it out. You don't need a five-year plan. You haven't got to work out what you're going to do tomorrow or the next day. You just follow Jesus. And he opens the doors, he leads you in the way, he providentially takes you on your journey. So holy brothers and sisters, who all have missions, let's consider Jesus. Let's focus on him, let's keep our eyes on him. And specifically here, he's referred to as the apostle and high priest. Only time in scripture that he's called that, apostle and high priest. We don't really think of Jesus as an apostle, do we? I mean, Paul's an apostle, right? Jesus sent him out. But, but remember, the, the word apostle simply means one who is sent out. And 
the whole basis of apostleship really comes from in John's Gospel, where this is such a key theme, the sending, where Jesus crucially in that Gospel says, as the Father has sent me, in the same way I also am sending you. Father gave Jesus the Holy Spirit at the inauguration of his ministry to empower him in his humanity to do his work. And he says, right now, the Spirit is with you. Why was the Spirit with them? Because he was in Jesus Christ. He come upon him and was in him from the baptism. But what's going to happen in the future is he will be in you. Right now, you're old covenant believers. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You're not empowered. Bunch of stupid sheep most of the time. But what's going to happen is just as the Father gave the Spirit to me, Spirit of God is upon you to preach the good news, fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He's just as that Father, just as my Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, gave me the Spirit so that the Spirit will be with you because He's in me. In the same way, He's going to place His Spirit in you and I, Christ, am going to send you just as the Father sent me. That's the whole mission thing, isn't it? And so, Jesus was the first sent one, and he is the basis of us being sent. You know, the Father sending the Son is a key thing in John's Gospel. It's in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, it's there four times. It's in chapter 6, three times. Chapter 7, three times. Chapter 8, five times. Just again and again, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me. It's a key theme in John's Gospel. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on that and says, look, you've got your heavenly calling, it's shared. Jesus had his calling, he was sent by God, you have your calling, you're sent by God too. He was an, your apostle and your high priest. These are in the context of what we've seen in the last few sermons in chapter 2. This is in the bigger context of what we're dealing with in Hebrews. He's creating, a, he's creating parallels with us and Jesus here. He's saying, look, Christ was sent... And in his mission, he accomplished something. He became your high priest. He's going to pick up on that as, the, as this letter goes on. He became your high priest so that you in your suffering have one to relate to, that he can come alongside you in the midst of your suffering. He shares in your suffering. He shares in your humanity. And we have these parallels with us and Christ where Christ goes before us and we will be apostles and high priests in the sense that we are sent out and we will minister in our suffering. Christ went before us. He's the great apostle, the great high priest, the great sent one, the great one who comes alongside that he will enable us to fulfill our ministry. He'll enable us to fill our ministry. And so he is the Apostle and High Priest. And by the way, as an aside, when we come into this whole section, the focus on Christ being sent is going to be more the focus for the next chapter or two. Chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 13 is going to focus more on him as our Apostle. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 14. Oh boy, am I looking forward to that. And then we really kick in for a few verses at the end of chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and the first half of chapter 7, or the bulk of chapter 7 really, we're going to see Jesus 
and him as our high priest well and truly explained in huge amounts of detail. So he's our apostle and high priest of our confession. This is important for where he's going to the end of this section. The confession is our faith in this context. He, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. In other words, it is us uniting together in faith that makes us say together, he's the one who was sent for us, he's the one who comes alongside us. It's not true for those outside the confession. And again, see this in the context of Hebrews. Why would you want to go to the synagogue where your relationship with these people is blood at the exclusion of meeting with your Christian brothers and sisters with whom the basis is your confession of faith? See how much greater that is. Now, in these early years, I mean, they, they could do both. They could meet with their, their Jewish brethren in the synagogue one day and then meet with me after that and the next day with their, with their Christian brethren. It wasn't an either or. We know historically that most of them did both. But the Jews weren't happy with that. It was their confession that set them aside. But it was their confession that gave them their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now this Jesus Christ, we're told, was faithful to him who appointed him. So Jesus has been sent by the Father. And did he do what the Father sent him to do? You betcha he did. He was faithful to his mission in every way. And really what's happening here, his faithfulness to the one who appointed him, obviously that's God the Father, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. That seems a bit of a weird thing for us, a bit of an outlier, but this is the argument coming. And he begins his argument on the superiority of Jesus by actually saying, you know what, the Jews are right. Moses is absolutely great. He was faithful, he was a great man, and the writer is very careful here to show that the exaltation of Jesus above Moses is in no way a lowering of the status of Moses. He's very clear about that. And I want to show you that in a couple of ways. Firstly, here in verse 2, look how he repeats the term faithful. Jesus was faithful and Moses was faithful. Now, was Jesus' faithfulness and obedience to God the Father perfect in every way? I think we're going to say yes to that, aren't we? Absolutely it was. Was Moses' faithfulness perfect? Absolutely not. And we're going to see that specifically next time with the quotation from Psalm 95 that we're going to be delving into. And we're going to go on a little journey next week because as we go back to Psalm 95, Psalm 95 then takes us back further because it is referencing a previous passage in Numbers 13 and 14. So we're going to be in both those passages next time to see the context that the author is referring us to. And in that, we're going to very clearly see that there was a degree of unfaithfulness that Moses was part of. And yet, Moses is called faithful. This is something that he is going to develop in this whole book. You know where it's going to end up, don't you? Because I know you know the passage in Hebrews 11 where it talks about people of great faith. And every single one of them has something in common. You know what? 
bunch of sinners. And there's a message here for us. Listen. When you finish your life, you don't want to hear, well done, good and successful servant. You don't want to hear, well done, good and highly esteemed servant. Good and well loved by their peers, servant. Good and their neighbour thought they were a great guy who knew how to cook a good barbecue, servant. Loved by people in the church because they all saw the good side of him, servant. There's only one thing you want to hear. There's only thing I, one thing I want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Moses was faithful. We're going to see later on as we get to that later chapter. These other great people of the faith, they were faithful. And the point here in this context is you have a shared mission, you have the Spirit, in the same way the Father sent Jesus, you've been sent, and you can be faithful. Not perfect, but faithful, through how Christ has enabled you through the propitiation, through being declared holy, through having this holy calling, you can be faithful. Moses was faithful, you can be faithful. Moses had the Spirit too. Unusually under the Old Covenant where most believers didn't have the Holy Spirit, Moses did. And it enabled his faithfulness and you have the same Spirit and you can be faithful. Let's look at it another way. I want to skim ahead a little bit because we'll come back and fill in the gaps. But look how he repeats something similar in verse 5. He says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. This is a reiteration of what he's saying in verse 2. Okay? He's saying, Moses was faithful... In all of God's house as a servant. That's something that you should aspire to. Because you should be faithful as Moses was faithful. But it's also pointing very specifically to the highest theme that Moses should have. And the reason for that is because, though you may not know it, I think you're, if you have little, those little center margins, those little cross-references in your Bibles, you may have a reference here, a little footnote here, to let you know that this statement in verse 5, that Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that would be spoken later, that the first part of that is an allusion to Numbers chapter 12. So we're going to briefly turn to Numbers chapter 12. This may become a two-parter. I'm struggling here with this. But uh, we need to look at Numbers 12 because I've already told you next week we're in Numbers 13 and 14. So there's a, this, there's a development that the writer of Hebrews wants us to see here. So let's briefly turn to Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy, that's your how you find it there in the Old Testament. As you're still turning there, maybe some of you are start reading. You listen to me read as you're turning and we can keep moving on. Miriam and Aram spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. So thanks for that clarification there. In other words, they weren't angry with him because he'd done something that he hadn't done. They were angry with something that he had done. He married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Hold on a minute. I thought the issue was he married a Cushite woman. But they're not saying, we've got a problem with you because you married a Cushite woman. Oh my, how common is this amongst God's people? 
You have a problem with someone because of X, but you shouldn't have a problem because of X. So you have a go at them about Y. Don't do it. It's a sin. It's a bad sin. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Don't communicate with your words feelings unrelated to the words that you're using. Be in control of your tongue. You are responsible for the words that you use and that you communicate. If somebody upsets you because they do X, don't say, well, you're a good-for-nothing, good for lousy Y, because you've just, you may have communicated how you feel, but you've lied with your tongue. The issue here was he married a Cushite woman. And by the way, this is, this is an early instance in the Bible of, of I, I genuinely believe, of racism. The Cushite people would have been black as opposed to a more olive-skinned Middle Eastern. They had issues because he's marrying someone who's not his own. Not just not one of the Jews, but, you know, seemingly a believer in that sense, perhaps a convert, but someone who would have looked very different. And they had an issue with that. And they made it about something else. Oh, I could get so into this and we could stop here in Numbers 12. How many issues are brewing right here? You know? I won't get into the whole anti you know, the, the, the whole racism issue here because I, I hopefully we're all on the same page here and there's nobody who does have an issue with that. Um, this text certainly wouldn't allow for you to hold such a position. But he's marrying someone very different and they're attacking him for something else. And they're basically, because he's doing something they don't agree with, they're questioning his authority. They've made it about something else and they're questioning his authority. Look, Moses, oh, he's this great prophet, this great... But we're prophets too. God speaks through us too. And indeed he did. Miriam and Aaron were both prophets. And the Lord heard it. Yahweh heard it. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth, more humble. And suddenly Yahweh said to Moses and to Mir Aaron and to Miriam, come out there, you three, to the tent of meeting. Tent of meeting at this point, by the way, is the place outside the camp where Moses would go to meet with God. And the the presence of God would visibly descend to the tent and the people would look like little curtains which is going, whoa, God's meeting with Moses. Aaron and Miriam didn't get to go, typically. Moses went. Now they've been called. Ah, we made a complaint. We, surely God speaks through us too. And now look, we've been promoted. We get to go to the tent of meeting too. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. It's more like headmaster's office than promotion. Suddenly they're called and they go there. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and he stood at the entrance of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam. They came forward and he says, you hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him. In other words, yeah, you guys are prophets. I'm the one that makes you a prophet. I'm the one that decides how I deal with you. And I make myself known to him in a vision. I would speak with him in a dream. So I made you prophets, and, and I can give you a dream, vision, I can give you a dream, I can help you to see something, and I can communicate to you in a way that people who aren't prophets don't get. Not with Moses. Not so with my servant Moses. 
he is faithful in all my house. Do you see the four things in parallel with Hebrews 3 verse 5? Servant, Moses, faithful, house. All there. That's why it's referring to this passage. It's a repetition of this. The context of this for us to understand for Hebrews 3 is Moses is highly esteemed and should be highly esteemed above everybody else. The writer of the Hebrews is not saying, oh, you Jews, you think Moses is so great, you just got it wrong. He's agreeing. And that's why he's quoting numbers. With him I speak mouth to mouth, directly. I speak to him face to face, like I'm speaking to you now. They only got to see God face to face and see him face to face and speak to him face to face because they were getting a telling off and a putting down and a humbling. Why then, sorry, speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles. In other words, they might see a dream or a vision and say, what does this mean? The Lord has to then reveal further the, the understanding of what's been revealed to them. But Moses, no. Moses just goes to the tent of meeting when God tells him to. God shows up in physical form and God just speaks to him. Literally speaks to him. Like you hear me speaking and you hear the words I'm saying. God came to Moses and he, they, he saw God and God spoke to him and he heard. They had conversations. It was a unique means of revelation. And he saw the form of the Lord. And then he asks them this, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Ah, and we just, in our world today, we just, we're just, we're part of this sort of, I don't know, we are the world, we are the children, you know. We're all one and the same, we're no different, we're all what have you. God has placed Things, put things in place, governments, um, in, in families, in churches, there's authority, there's structure. And God has given some people more gifts than other people. He's put some people in positions. He hasn't placed other people. And you know what? You, you, you rebel against that, you rebel against God. Sim simple as that. God says, what, why when Moses has this position, would you even dare to speak out against him? And so the anger of Yahweh was kindled against them. And he goes on and cloud is removed. Miriam ends up being leprous. And uh, as a result, and Aaron says, why, 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 why? You know, don't punish us. We've, we've done foolishly, we sin, but don't let her be leprous. And, and there is this time where for seven days she's kicked outside the camp like a leper. And then she's healed and she's allowed back in again. And... Uh, we believe that chronologically this is prior to the establishment of the fullness of the law and the, uh, the, the laws regarding the, what you do with a cleansed leper. But, but either way, Miriam here is a very rare person who has leprosy and then later does not. It's a judgment against her. Moses should not have been challenged. He did hold a place of high esteem. So let's take that back with us. Let's take that back now to the book of Hebrews. 
So the writer of the Hebrews, by referencing Numbers 12, is clearly not, and we'll take this journey on, we'll be into Numbers 13, 14 next week, but he's clearly not saying that Moses is a sucker, why are you thinking he's great, you know? He's clearly lifting Moses up, he's saying he's in a great place. He's, he's this wonderful person and he should be esteemed. He was faithful, okay? So let's have that clear. So with that in mind, we can move a little quicker now. Verse 3. You know, verse 2, Moses is faithful. Moses is faithful to God's house. 4, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more than the house itself. In other words, Moses is part of the people of God. But Jesus is the creator of the people of God. Jesus is the one who gives Moses his authority. Jesus is the one who created Moses. We've seen all of that. And look at the little parenthetical statement in verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus isn't part of the team. Jesus is the maker of the team, the head of the team. Jesus isn't just some guy who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm gifted for ministry too. I've got a mission too, like you guys. He's the one who created. He created the Jewish people. He created the remnant, the believe, faithful believers within that. The Israel of God, as Paul calls them. He, he's created the church. He's made the two men one. And he steps down as creator of the universe, becomes a man in the incarnation so that he can share with us a mission, so he can be a brother to us. I mean, how, how do you reconcile those things? He's not part of the house. He's the builder of the house. He's the one who creates us. He's the one who, who gives us the Spirit to empower us. He's the one who sends us out. And yet he's our brother. And yet we share with him in a mission. It's just crazy, isn't it? Those two so different aspects that are equally true. He, and don't miss the, the very clear implication of verse 4. The one who builds is God. Jesus builds. Jesus is God. How much greater than Moses is he? He's the creator of Moses. And then verse 5, as we've seen this repetition, the clearer allusion to Numbers 12. Yes, he should be high esteemed, but who gave him that position? God gave him that position. Implication? Christ gave him that position. Guys, you need to see the connection with Numbers 12 here. Who came in physical form and spoke on that day in Numbers 12? Who rebuked Miriam and Aaron? Yeah, it was God. But do you want to get more specific? Who is it who shows up when God shows up in physical form? Who is it of the Trinity that volunteered and said, I'll go, Father, let me go. Who came, took on human flesh, that he would die in our place for our sins and through his death accomplish our propitiation. Was it not the Son? I believe that that day in Numbers 12, it was Jesus who spoke. 
Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Why? To testify to what was to come. In the old days, long ago, remember where we started this journey, Hebrews 1.1? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. People he appointed, prophets who had dreams, prophets who had visions, and this great prophet above them all, who God spoke to face to face, and now the one who spoke face to face with him. That son is the one through whom God speaks. We stand in a far greater era. We are ones who have that Son in us by His Spirit. We are deeply privileged. So I see in all of this an esteeming of Moses, but him put in his place in the sense that Christ is so much greater and what he's going to show is our association with Christ puts us in this incredible position. Look, he, he uses this interesting word. He says, he says, therefore you who share in a heavenly calling. The word literally in the Greek is partakers. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. Okay? He's going to say later in this chapter, we may well get there next week, that we are partakers of the Messiah. Chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ. We're partakers of the Messiah. In chapter 6, verse 4, we're partakers of the Holy Spirit. And that's why in chapter 12, we have to be on occasion partakers of divine discipline. It is our association with Christ that enables us. I think there is, while there is this esteeming of, Christ, of, of Moses, while there is the placing of Christ well above Moses, there is this implication that is being built up to, which is we as believers, because of our association with Christ, there's this parallel with us and Moses. Moses was unique because the Spirit of God indwelt him as an old covenant believer. But in the new covenant, we all have the Spirit indwelling us. That's chapter 6 that starts. We're not under the old covenant, we're under the new. We're not like the regular people, we're more like Moses. The old covenant's greater than the new covenant. How do we have that? We have that in Christ, because of Christ's death. You see how much greater Christ is? Why would you go back to the old covenant? Why would you go back to a system without the Spirit? Why would you walk away from that? Why would you walk away from Christ? Why would you esteem Moses and angels? Why on earth would you leave Jesus when he is so much better, when he's given you so much more, when you're in such a better position? Why are you going to associate yourselves with these people who are unbelievers and don't have the new covenant, who don't have the Holy Spirit? Why? And that's the question for us too. Moses testified to Christ and we have Christ. And Christ, verse 6, is faithful over God's house as the Son. And there's that word faithful again. And the implication is building and building. Are you, readers of this, going to be faithful? Are you going to be faithful to Christ as he has been faithful to you? Are you going to leave this greatness that you have, all these blessings? Are you going to leave? Are you going to lay that aside for the sake of your comfort? Does this world appeal to you? 
Is it more important to be loved by your workmates than be faithful to God? Is it more important to be seen to be inclusive and acceptable, to fit in with the ways of the world than it is for God to see you as faithful to Him? Does the world call you? Does the desire to be exalted like Miriam and Aaron, does that, does that pull you away from faithfulness to God? Are you more concerned about satisfying yourself, protecting yourself than you are to be faithful to God? How can that be? It can only be because we allow our eyes to shift to the practical day-to-day -day earthly matters. Things like acceptance. Things like comfort. Things like persecution. And I'm not saying they're not small matters. I'm not saying you won't lose your job. I'm not saying that you won't go through terrible rejection and slander and, and, and abuse and horrific things in the name of God because of your faith. I'm not saying that won't happen. But how, how can that hold a higher value than the propitiation from sin? The gift of the Son, the association with Him, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the empowerment, the being made holy so that you have a holy mission that you are sent out to do, to accomplish for the glory of God, to produce fruit that will last for all eternity. And so he ends the passage. And this isn't a tricky passage. This isn't a lose your salvation passage. He just simply says, look, verse 6, we are part of that house Moses was faithful in the house, and we're part of that same house, that same people of God, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. He, he's not saying, look, if you go back, you lose your salvation. That's not possible. He's not saying if you go back, you were never saved. He's not saying anything about that at all. He's just simply saying, if you're one of the ones who stays, you know you're good. He says, you know that you're his house when the world calls you away and you stay faithful. You know you're God's when persecution comes and you stay faithful. You know. He says, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The phrase literally, and I love the net translation here, is talking about hope we take pride in. I love the phrase boasting in hope. Hope we take pride in. Listen, remember, by, by Bible language, hope is not, oh, I hope that's going to happen. Hope is our assurances. You come at me, Satan. Jesus has got my soul. You want to slander me? God knows how faithful I am. You want to tear me down? God sees my heart. You want to persecute me, hurt me, destroy my body? You cannot touch my soul. I'm Christ's. I will be with him. He will redeem me. He is in control. I fear not the enemy. I fear not the world. I am Christ's. Be proud of your hope, brethren. Be proud of your hope. You are Christ's. And he will never let you go. He can be trusted without a doubt. The world has nothing to offer you. All that you have is in Christ. 
Place your life in his hands. Trust him. Cast your eyes upon him and be faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. What blessings we have in you. And God, just forgive us when we're distracted. We're distracted by those who harm us. We're distracted by those who hurt us. We're distracted by the desire to be accepted by the world. We're distracted, we're distracted by all the, 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 the things the world tells us that we need to be happy. Distracted by money and distracted by power. We're distracted by, by all these things. And yet we have Christ. May we be satisfied with Jesus alone. May we trust in Jesus alone. May we be found in all times, in all circumstances, to be faithful. For your glory we ask this. Amen.